I jumped into the chair in the area and I screamed, Matthew, don't you come down here. <laughs> so I may have scarred that young man for life. Nomadic cowbirds and poking the puffballs. I like turtles. And lightsaber frog calls. Fresh steamy scat filled with persimmon seeds. My name is Lindsay, and I'm here with Deb. Yeah, good morning. I'm Deb Williams, and I'm a naturalist and educator here at the Great Plains Nature Center. I'm glad to be here today. I'm actually going to talk about my favorite, <gasps> the today. And I know you guys haven't been able to pin me down before, but I'm really going to say it's my favorite this time. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Um, I do have to say that we're from the Great Plains Nature Center, and you're listening to That's My Favorite, the podcast where we geek out with naturalists. Um, today is Deb's day to geek out, and I have no idea what we're going to be talking about today. I asked her, and she refused to tell me, and then she walked in with a bag and told me not to let anything crawl away. Right? Is that what you said? That's what I said. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Which, because I thought, even though our visitors or those people listening, excuse me, cannot see what we have in our hands, that we still ought to have the actual species here to uh, give us something to maybe relate to. Perfect. Uh, okay. I'm excited. Yeah. Okay. So usually, before I share this particular animal with students that I'm telling a, um, a story to, I like to say that this is a Wichita State band and ask them if they can guess what colors it is. But just in case you don't know about Wichita State University, it is our local college right here in Wichita, Kansas. And here's a little bit of music. So that's the Wichita State fight song. I wasn't a graduate, graduate of Wichita State University, but maybe some people would recognize it. So that's the hint to the colors of this particular animal that is my favorite. And so, Lindsay, you got any guesses? Well, I live in Wichita, so I'm familiar with Wichita State University, so I'm going to have to go with yellow and black. That's correct, yeah. We're talking about the speckled king snake today. And the reason that it's my favorite actually has a long story, but I will try to uh, make it a little short. <laughs> yeah. So um, I first came to work at the Great Plains Nature Center in 2011, right after I retired as a public educator. And prior to my experience here, I had never been around snakes to, you know, except in uh, casual encounters or not ones that I had planned, that's for sure. And I actually, I was scared to death of snakes. And anytime I had a bad dream or a nightmare, snakes were present in that dream. Oh, no. Yeah. But um, one of my first encounters that I remember was uh, my sister and my aunt and I were walking down a trail from the lake to a cabin in the great north woods in Wisconsin. And um, we had blindfolded her, and we were make, playing a game. And um, a snake went across the trail. My sister and I screamed, left my aunt behind, and jumped over the snake and probably that snake was no more harmful than anything else. But, oh. <laughs> but here was my aunt, still blindfolded, left behind, not knowing what we had been so upset about. Um, the second incident with a snake that I really remember, uh, my oldest son, Matthew, was about uh, three or four years old at the time, and it had been our practice to fix our lunch after we'd been at uh, our vacation Bible school, and then we would walk downstairs to our TV viewing area, and we'd set up TV trays, and we would watch Sesame Street. And this particular day, I walked downstairs, and right in the middle of our viewing area, the carpet, was a big old snake coiled on the carpet. And of course, to this day, I probably exaggerate the length of that <laughs> snake, but I'm going to guess it was probably three to four feet in length. And I just... I jumped into the chair in the area, and I screamed, Matthew, don't you come down here. 
<laughs> so I may have scarred that young man for life oh, too because no. he doesn't care for snakes. And and uh, I had remembered that just that previous week, a young lady that lived down at the end of the block um, had come by showing us a pet snake that she had. And I thought, oh, I'll just go get her. And it was, so we walked um, out to the corner to their house and she came down and, and it's amazing that the snake was still where we could find it when yeah. we got back. And she carried it down to the local park. I didn't want her to kill it for any, you know, or anything, but I didn't think it needed to be in the basement of my home. And then my husband, Randy, tried to convince me that that was a once in a lifetime occurrence. It would never happen again. But in our present home, we probably have found um, either evidence like shed skin or maybe two or three snakes. Uh, the most recent occurrence was probably last summer. I had uh, piled up the laundry near the washer and dryer, and I went to pick up the whites, and this little head poked it, uh, its way out of the pile of whites, and I just put it back down mildly, and I went upstairs, and I told Randy, I said, supper's about ready, and by the way, would you go downstairs and get that snake out of the basement for me? <laughs> so, but... Um, but when I came to the Nature Center then, um, one of the AmeriCorps jobs or positions was to clean the animal cages, and I just never did the snake ones. At first, I uh, tried asking Bob Grass, our former director, if he would get the snakes out for me, and then I would clean the cages, and then he would put the snakes back in. Mm -hmm. And I just always felt so bad when the kids would come and they say, oh, do we get to touch the snakes today? And I'd say, well, not with me, you don't. Oh. <laughs> but... On a couple occasions, I went down and got Jim Mason, one of our other former directors, and asked Jim if he would come down and hold the snake, I would do the program for the kids because I just felt bad. So um, one other young AmeriCorps member uh, that came to work here helped me to get over my fear of snakes. And what she did was that she would hold the snake in her hands, and I just started by touching. And then she progressed to putting it in my hands, and then... When I got too uncomfortable, then I would give it back to her. But uh, probably after about three months, I got to the point that I felt like I was comfortable enough holding the snake in front of children. And right now, I'm sitting with the speckled king snake in my lap, just, you know, it's setting calmly, and it's just as comfortable as I am. So, I, Oh, my gosh, Deb. I had no idea you used to be afraid of snakes. Like, uh, really afraid. Well, yeah. Watching you handle snakes today, I never would have guessed that whatsoever. So yeah. it's, it's amazing what just a little bit of stepping out of your comfort zone can do. Yeah, and I know that there are still people who don't even want to walk into the classroom mm -hmm. and be near a snake. And I try to tell them, well, it, you know, you can do it. Another um, volunteer here, Carolyn, uh, worked with me one time at uh, an event where we had the snake. And she learned how to hold the snake that day. And it was her first experience. So I felt like I had passed something along. That's I, wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, I, I understand the whole walking into the classroom thing. When my mm -hmm. own mom comes to visit, she's deathly afraid of snakes. And she says, okay, okay, where are the snakes in the classroom? And I point them out to her so she can avoid those yeah. areas because she's terrified of them. And I don't know how people develop those fear of snakes. And I asked my mom if it was something that happened as a child because I spent about a year and a half to two years of, like my preschool ages, I was probably between the ages of two and three, living in Arizona on mm. the south rim of the Grand Canyon. And I can understand there where my parents might have instilled a, more of a fear of snakes into me because of the kind of snake that you would find in that region. Yeah. But my mom said, oh, no, she wasn't scared at snakes at all. And her brothers had teased him with them when she was a child going up on the farm. So I don't know where I learned that fear of snakes. But. I, I mean, I was the same way. I was... I mean, I think I learned it initially as a kid from my mm -hmm. mom because she was terrified of them and her fear kind of rubbed off on me as a kid. Yeah. But as I grew up and I learned more about snakes, I realized that there really isn't very much to fear from them. Yeah. So. Well, you do need to be cautious and you yeah. need to think about. And I still don't go out in the wild like some of my colleagues do <laughs> and pick up snakes that I don't know. Yeah. So I have to know them and know that they're snakes that I'm not going to get a, an unusual reaction from. Yeah, I completely yeah. understand that. Yeah. As one of those colleagues that goes out and picks up snakes I'm a little hesitant <laughs> about some of them like if they're really big I'll avoid messing with them just because they make me a little nervous but uh -huh. if they're on the smaller side like garter snakes or decays brown snakes or anything easily handled yeah I'm all for it but okay. I understand the cautionary side of everything yeah. so 
So getting back to the snake that I chose as my yes. favorite, I first um, did some study for snake programs for our children with a book that I bought in our gift shop called Awesome Snake <laughs> Science. It's a wonderful reference, and what I like about it is that it, uh, I think, helps you to get over that fear of snakes by giving you the facts and also um, some hands-on activities that I can share with children to help them to be more comfortable around snakes as well and learning about them. Cool. And uh, one of the things that I learned from this book, Awesome Snake Science, is that if you really love snakes and you want to spend time studying them, then you're an ophiologist. What? Yeah, O-P-H-I-O-L-O-G-I-S-T, ophiologist. I had no idea. Yeah, and since I know that Lindsay likes word origins, I looked this up for her. Um, Ophus, the first part of the word, means snake, and then ology, which we, most of us know means study of, hmm. so study of snakes. And usually we think about herpetology yeah. as the study of, of snakes, but if you want to specialize, then you would be an ophiologist. Fascinating. Yeah, so it's started out previously that there were about eight species of king snakes, which a speckled king snake belongs to that group. Um, but now, as of about 2009, uh, scientists have decided that there are actually 10 known species of king snakes. Their family is the Lampropeltus, and they're non-venomous, and they... Um, the reason that they changed their mind um, is that they thought that they had found new advancements in molecular biology, and several species that were once lumped into one species have now been identified and classified as their own species. Cool. Yeah. Um, another name for the speckled king snake. Now, this one I had not heard before until I started doing a little more research. Uh, the guinea snake, or the says, S-A-Y apostrophe S, king snake. And they are popular in the United States. Here in Kansas, you, we have 105 counties, and their distribution map, if you look at a distribution map of them, they're found in almost every county in Kansas. Mm -hmm. Yeah, although... I can't say that I've ever found one in the wild. Have you, Lindsay? Yes, I have, actually. When um, I helped with some small mammal trapping when I was working on my undergraduate degree at, mm -hmm. at K-State, and um, we opened up one of our, our small mammal traps, and there wasn't a mammal in there. There was a really big speckled king snake that had made <laughs> okay. its way into there, and that was probably one of the coolest finds that we found in oh, those yeah. old traps. Well, mm -hmm. speaking of big, uh, they can get to be about three to four feet in length. Um, this speckled king snake that I'm holding right now is newer to us. We've just had it about the last four or five years, I think. Uh, previous to that, we had a speckled king snake that was more than 20 years old. In captivity, they can live 20 to 30 years, uh, depending on their general health and how they're cared for. And uh, that snake probably was about the four foot length and uh, but uh, as big around as the uh, jar cap like on a peanut butter jar maybe May oh that's an exaggeration that's not quite big. that yeah <laughs> wasn't, that big. wasn't that big maybe more like that like I a tube of toothpaste yeah yeah maybe that but that's still yeah that's bigger so big. than that okay. yeah bigger than that and it was just the most docile snake so it was a good introduction to snakes and um becoming more comfortable with them. Good. Yeah. Now, this was something I had not heard either, and I needed to take a look, closer look at our speckled king snake today. It says that there are two <clears throat> uh, dots found in the center of their head, and I don't think I'd ever looked for those before. Yeah, I can see them. Yeah. And that they also have kind of yellow lines on their upper surface or their uh, dorsal surface. Oh. Yeah. And I'd always just thought of them as dots and not necessarily lines. And not but, lines. Yeah, but if you look at them. I can see them, the lines now. Yeah. So, as we mentioned earlier, this snake is black and yellow, but king snakes can be a variety of beautiful, beautiful colors. They have a lot of different color coloration. And, um, you know, one of the important questions that people ask when they first come in and see our snakes is they want to know if they're, quote, poisonous. And notice that I use the term poison, and I'd kind of like to clarify that, since I think this is for our first podcast that we've done on snakes. It is. I actually wrote down that we should probably clarify the difference between poisonous ah. and venomous. So, so I'm, I'm glad what is your understanding? Up. So for my understanding, poison is something that you ingest, mm -hmm. and venom is something that is injected. So if you eat it, 
it's poison and it makes you sick, it's poisonous. Mm-hmm. If it tries to eat you or if it bites you, it's venomous. Okay. Well, that's a good, I think, explanation of it. And uh, so an, an important thing about a speckled king snake, and I just think this is absolutely fascinating, is that they, even being a non-venomous snake, can consume or eat venomous snakes. I thought that was just a wonderful thing to know. And when you uh, click on this podcast, if you use our website to watch the podcast or listen, excuse me, to the podcast, um, I will include a couple of pictures from a Texas nature center is where these came from originally. And they're of a speckled king snake with its body wrapped around a copperhead snake. And in the first picture, you can see the two snakes lying kind of parallel with the, uh, or their heads parallel, which makes you think, holy cow, what if that copperhead bites the speckled king snake? Yeah. Yeah. And they quite often will get bitten in the this process of consuming or eating another uh, particularly venomous snake, and even non-venomous. So. But Deb, what happens when a venomous snake bites a king snake? Ah, uh, well... There's a whole great article that I read, and there were some scholarly articles that I kind of skimmed, but <laughs> but it's um, about venom resistance. And uh, so the common king snake has a habit of eating these other snakes, and um, the resistance kind of helps them to break down any of the enzymes in the venom that would be, um, and here's that term, poisonous, <laughs> to um, the, the individual that ate it or was bitten by it, I guess you would say. And um, But I also found that, let's say, okay, well, great, we've got a speckled king snake, and it can eat all these copperheads we have living around here, and we won't have to worry about them anymore. But what I found was that it is particular to a region. So I can't just move a speckled king snake from one place where it's living to another, and it will have the same resistance to the venom from those snakes. Okay, so it's based on the venomous snakes that are around... Mm-hmm. So, I, and I get this question a lot with school groups when I use our speckled king snake, and I tell them that they're um, immune to those type or venomous snakes. And a lot of the times, black mambas come up. Oh yeah, that's a snake a lot of kids recognize as being a venomous snake. Mm-hmm. And uh, they say, would it be able to take down a black mamba? And now I have a better way to answer that yeah, question. Yeah, yeah. Um, it says uh, king snake resistance from this article that I uh, found is evolved rather than acquired. So in other words, you know, sometimes we can build up an immunity to childhood diseases through a vaccination or whatever. Yeah. But you can't make a king snake more resistant to the venom is the way I would understand that. Okay. So it's just whatever they are born with that helps them to be resistant to a particular kind of venom. That is so interesting. Okay, I might throw you off just a little bit here. Okay. Does this ability help uh, with the production or study of antivenoms? Um, yes, I think I did see that in one of the uh, scholarly articles okay. that I found. Yeah. Okay. So that, if you want to know a little bit more about it, you could research it. Yeah. And I think I included a link to that particular article. I'll include that in our resources. Okay. So you can find out a little bit more about it. Okay, great. Yeah. And you, you need some scientific knowledge because it will have a lot of chemical properties of discussion in that particular article. Yeah. Yeah. Um, although, they have found, I thought this was kind of interesting from this article, mice injected with king snake blood can survive viper venom better than those that aren't. Whoa. Yeah, so in a sense, it's transferable. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so, I don't know if I want to inject myself with king snake blood. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I'm not so sure either. Yeah, okay, well, anything else on venom or poison and non the difference between non-venomous and poisonous? I think we covered our bases pretty well. Okay. Well, I mentioned earlier that speckled king snakes have a pretty long lifespan, um, 20 years in the wild, perhaps, and um, as a, uh, the one that we had here earlier lived to be about 20 or 30 years in captivity, and as far as I can tell, this speckled king snake is a pretty healthy snake. It just keeps growing all the time. Mm-hmm. I remember when we first got it, it was probably about, what, six to seven inches in no. length? And probably 
about the width oh, of my little my finger. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, so it was pretty little. Yeah. Um, they can live in lots of places, prairies, uh, brushy areas, forest, wooded hillsides. So you think of Kansas and the topography of Kansas. You have the forested areas on the eastern part of the state, and then you move into the Flint Hills and then kind of the more deserty uh, short grass areas. And really, they can be found in most all kinds of habitats. Okay. But they're just like anything else. They're still going to have to have food and water to be able to survive. Yeah. Um, the several articles that I read as far as their behavior indicated that they're a very docile snake and that they're good for pets. And maybe a lot of people do have king snakes for the pet. Have you ever had a pet snake? I have not. My mother wouldn't allow it. <laughs> and uh, I'm pretty satisfied with the dog and frogs and yeah. fish that I have right now. So, Well, I probably wouldn't have one for a, uh, either. But if you want to go out and look in the wild for uh, king snakes or speckled king snakes in particular, uh, in Kansas, uh, they're generally diurnal depending on the temperature. Of course, if it's 100 degrees out, you're not going to find them out and about. It's too hot for them. Yeah. Uh, but April uh, to October is a good time to find them more active. Um, but even probably April and May is the two months of the year. When did you find the snake that you found? Um, it was in the springtime. It was still pretty chilly out, so I would probably say early April. Okay. For our listeners out there, can we define diurnal? Because I know oh, okay. most people are familiar with nocturnal, but mm-hmm. they might not be so familiar. Just means with they're more active in the daytime. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, they're not known to be good climbers, although when I think of this particular speckled snake, I was in doing a program earlier this morning, and I saw it kind of edging its way up the glass, and at the top of its cage, there's a very narrow ledge, and sometimes it will climb into that ledge, and then if you try to get it out, it will expand its body and its muscles, and it's almost impossible to get that out of there. So climb trees. No, but I think they can climb a little bit. I don't know. Yeah, he's definitely crawled up uh, my body. <laughs> yeah, and Before. well, and climbs through belt loops and up your sleeves. And, yep. But what it's really looking for is just a warmer place on your body to be. Yep. Yeah. And some folks are comfortable with a snake uh, hanging around your he- uh, neck, but I am not. And. Because the snake is a constrictor, which means that they wrap their bodies around their prey and they tighten and tighten until the prey, and this is something else I thought we might talk a little bit about, um, is asphyxiated is what we used to assume. Mm -hmm. But uh, what I've been reading more is that what is actually happening is as they, they tighten their bodies around the individual that they're eating, that they're uh, keeping the blood from flowing. Yeah. So it's kind of just like a fine line. Yes, if the blood's not flowing, then they're not getting oxygen to their other parts of their body. And I used another big word there, asphyxiation, which means you're uh, doing without air or so. I don't know. What have you heard about that? I've heard it's the the constricting of blood. Mm -hmm. Um, So they just essentially fall asleep. Oh, okay. And um, yeah, that's, I mean, that's what I've heard. They just kind of cut off the flow of blood and And I've even heard that the snake is sensitive enough to actually feel the heartbeat of the critter that they are constricting stop, and then they know, like with a particularly with a venomous snake, that it's okay to go ahead and start eating the animal, mm-hmm. and, and they are in less danger of being attacked or bitten by the or, venomous snake. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. And uh, thinking about what they're eating, I thought it was also amazing that speckled king snakes can eat 139 percent. Uh, greater than their body size. And Amanda, one of our other naturalists, came up with this interesting graphic that I will also put on the website with the article. And uh, you see a picture of Taylor Swift and a picture of an ice cream cone. And the ice cream cone, uh, if would be like if she were to eat that size of ice cream cone, then that's like a snake eating an object larger than it. Okay, now when you say body size, are you talking about body mass, body length? Uh, like? uh, mostly length in the in the case of a snake. Okay. Yeah. Mostly length. Okay. Yeah. And, I mean, it has to be 
small enough that they can actually fit it into their mouths. Well, sure. Yeah, sure. Although they have pretty good mouths too, but I was going to get back to that later if I Okay. Yeah. We'll we'll hit that later. (laughs) Okay. So then Amanda also copied off this chart, which is kind of interesting. It's an x-ray of a, I believe it's a corn snake actually consuming another snake and showing how it would be possible for a snake to get a longer length animal in its body. And you have to think about maybe uh, what we use to describe this to children is a pipe cleaner. And what the snake does is that it kind of uh, takes the pipe cleaner and makes a zigzag Mm. out of it so that it can get it down through its um, system into its body as it's um, decomposing or... yeah. Digesting Digested. is the word I was looking for. I yeah. have never thought about that before because I always think of snakes eating like rodents. I never think about them having to fit a longer snake yeah. inside their bodies. That's, so that's kind of, it's an interesting picture to see this x-ray picture of the snake that's being eaten, folded up inside the body yeah. of the animal that's consuming it. And I imagine we'll put this on the website. Yeah, I have um, all of these included, awesome. these pictures that I'm talking about. Um, included as a part of the presentation. Great. Yeah, but you talked about the animal not, uh, or having to eat something that they can um, actually fit in their mouth, Mm -hmm. but snakes have an interesting adaptation. If you feel right here at your jaws where your um, upper and lower jaw are connected, you can feel that bone that connects them, and as you open and close your mouth, Mm -hmm. but a snake has an extra bone in there that's called a quadrate, And I also have a picture of that for people to see. And what that bone allows it to do is to expand greater than what appears to be the size of their mouth. And then their skin is also very, very flexible. So as they um, put their mouth over the body of the animal, you can actually see that mouth appear to widen even greater than you'd think it would be possible. And not too long ago, I happened to take a short video and picture of our speckled king snake starting to consume a mouse that had been placed in its um, cage for it, for its meal. And um, I think I have two pictures that kind of show the progression of the snake eating the mouse. Cool. But what's really neat, I think, is to watch the mouse as it's being pushed down the snake's body <gasps> yeah. with the constriction of the muscles. But yeah, but I didn't get to that point in the pictures. <laughs> I just took the one with um, the first the snake first putting in the mouse in its mouth and then starting to move with its muscles the mouse down and through its body. I love it. Yeah, although our snake is probably a little lazy compared to snakes in the wild because it does not have to constrict its prey to, to begin with. And I don't think I've ever seen the speckled king snake constrict the prey. Uh, yeah, I haven't because we feed them... Um already deceased mice and Mm -hmm. we don't feed them live animals so they really don't have a cause or ours doesn't have a cause to do that in captivity Mm -hmm. but i have experienced the constriction um many times when you take this animal on a program it will start wrapping its body around your features like your wrist or your arm and i remember not too uh long ago emily was doing a program with the speckled king snake and she had to have me come in and help unwrap the the snake from her wrist because she could not get it off and I had had that happen before too. Yep. And one other program I remember the snake had wound itself completely up into a ball and I could not pry it apart. Hmm. So I just came back and put it in its cage wrapped up in a ball. I didn't know what else to do yeah. because it was just too strong. Their muscles are just amazing yeah. as far as their strength. They're impressive little things. Yeah. Not even that little. I mean they're Take back the little part. They're just, they're just impressive. <laughs> yeah. Well, another thing I wanted to mention was this time of year, we wouldn't be able to find the snakes out in uh, the areas of Kansas. They would uh, be what, as most people would say, would be hibernating, but there's a special word for snakes, and it's called brumation, where their metabolism slows down, and um, they will huddle together in the cold winter months to help uh, maintain their body heat. But um, this book, Awesome Snake Science, 
also has some really fun facts about snakes. And this one from the book says, if a snake's body temperature falls below 60 degrees Fahrenheit while there is food in its stomach, the food will rot instead of being digested. And then the snake would probably die from the poisons from the rotting food. Yeah. Yeah. But um, um, another thing that we think about snakes maybe is that they are cold-blooded, but a proper term would be ectothermic. Mm -hmm. And I usually had told the kids that they're... that's really a hard statement to understand cold blood because it makes them think that their blood is going to be cold, cold. and it will be cooler to temperature, but it's not going to be like ice cold or freezing or anything because they still have some heat in their body. Yeah. And just to break down that word ectotherm, ecto means Mm. outside, meaning they get their body heat outside of their body from say the sun or from a warm rock or Mm -hmm. asphalt sometimes. Um, And then endo, endotherms would be like a human being we're endotherms so we generate body heat inside our bodies endos inside yeah so sometimes i will tell people too a snake's not going to get up and do jumping jacks to (laughs) help warm itself up so it has to find a place to stay warm Uh, which makes me think too that a lot of times um younger people will tell me that snakes live um uh, dig holes in the ground and i'm thinking Now, how do they dig a hole in the ground? I think they borrow the burrows of other animals that are capable of digging a hole in the ground. (laughs) Although our hog-nosed snake, on the other hand, does have that upturned nose and perhaps could dig a small depression in the ground to try to find a place to keep warmer. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's see. Um, They um, are... Okay, I found, um, I was going to think about their reproduction and their life cycle then next, too. Okay. Um, So I found a video. It's not excellent, but I will post it as well, of two mating speckled king snakes. Oh. This one's from Louisiana, and I don't know if you want to take the time to watch it right now and comment on it, or if you would just want to see, think about that. (laughs) I'll think about it. Okay. Well, anyway... um, I understood that if two males are competing for the attention of a female, that they might raise their heads and their necks as far as they can. They only have two bones in their neck, so not very far. And then they wrap around each other and press the other one to the ground. And um, the one that retreats or loses or feels like it has lost the battle for the attention of the female will lay down coiled up with its head on the ground. And... um, that during the mating process too, that they will the male will sometimes bite the female's neck during mating. Yeah. So, so this video is a little hard to see. Um, it starts out in a very grassy, lush green area, and then the snakes kind of move to where you can see them a little bit better. Oh. But yeah, so kind of interesting though. Okay, I want to see it. <laughs> okay. Uh. has a little musical background to it. (laughs) And these are the males? This is a male and a female. Oh, this is a male and a female. Uh Uh-huh. And as I mentioned, because of the lush growth, it's a little hard to see that Mm -hmm. there are actually two snakes there. And it's a, a homemade video. It's not a professional video. But I think right there you can kind of see the tails. Which reminds me, some people say that you can tell the difference between a male and a female snake by the width of their tail. What do you think about that? I'm going to go stand by my mic to answer that. Okay. Um, From my understanding, I think that the males have longer tails, I think. And I might have this backwards, so we might have to look this up. Okay. Unless you know the answer. Well, I do have some information about it. Let me see if I can find it here. But, I mean, it's really difficult to tell the difference between male and female snakes because they don't show any obvious physical differences between the two sexes. So No difference in coloration or size for the most part? or I think females are a little bigger, I okay. think. Okay. But I, I'm not a... Rep, I'm not a um, an ophiologist, is that right? Ophiologist. Off, I'm not an ophiologist. I am off a, on, you know. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. I am. Yeah. I am a mycologist, so I study mushrooms. But so I don't know. I don't know that much about snakes. So I'm. I'm learning a lot today. Okay. But, yeah. Well, here's a, if you want to zip a rack around <laughs> here again to see this video, 
you can kind of see now more carefully that there are, are two snakes. Oh, yeah. And in a little bit, you can also see that, and I don't know if it's the male or female, actually has a hold of the other snake in its mouth. Mm. I, I don't know where I saw that, but in some part of the video, you can see that the animal is biting at the other one. I may, may have already missed it, but look if you look at it closely, you can see that. Uh, but you were talking about uh, the difference between male and female, and just um, most articles that I read said that males can be easily differentiated. I don't think so I easily don't think it's easy. because they have thicker tails. Okay, and it's it, what by what they mean by the tail is past the opening where the snake, and I can't get to it right now because the snake is all wadded up. <laughs> <laughs> constricted, and now it's wrapped itself around the arm of the chair. Go Hang on figure. a second. Yeah, but anyway, there is an opening close to where the tail begins. It's called a cloaca. Yeah, that um, is where the feces or the poop or the pee and the eggs would come out if it was a female snake. And so it's that portion of the tail from that that point, the cloaca, towards the end of the tail that you would consider to look at for the, whether it was male or female. Okay, so the males have thicker tails, not longer ones. I knew mm -hmm. it was something about the males. Yeah. And then um, I guess maybe it would be obvious if you had both sexes right next to each other, but... Yeah. How would you know in the first place? How would you know, place? yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, and then in terms of general body size, do you, do you know? I mean... I really don't. I, you know, and sometimes with other animals that don't have any coloration differences, you'd really have to have the two of them sitting right next to you to be able to tell, oh, yeah, the female's bigger or the male's smaller. And you'd have to know that they were approximately the same age because that would possibly make a difference, too. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to see if I can. Yeah, and many males are generally larger. Mm -hmm. Oh, wait, wait. Just kidding. <laughs> okay. Snakes, huh. it's the opposite. So females are the larger of the gen or of the sexes. Okay. And um, males are smaller than females. So that is very interesting. Mm -hmm. And then since this is uh, for younger people as well as older people, there are other ways that you can tell the um, sex of the animal. And you can use a probe inserted inside the cloaca to see if you can find evidence of the male organs or the lack of, therefore, female. Yeah. It's so. pretty invasive, though. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I'm not sure that this critter would sit still for that kind of... So I don't know at this point, uh, what have you been told about the sex of this snake? Um, I think our general consensus is that our speckled king snake is a male. Yeah, but we don't really but know. We don't know for yeah. sure. Yeah. We did have a previous hognose snake, and I don't think it, we ever knew, but one day when I was cleaning its cage, I lived lifted up the kind of piece of carpet that we had in the cages at that time, and uh, there were some eggs oh. laying there. They were not fertilized eggs, but they were eggs. So then from then on, we knew that it was a female, just, and uh, also understood that it was a good thing that that female had laid eggs, because if they had stayed inside her body, it would probably have caused her demise or her death. Yeah, they would have just rotted. Mm -hmm. um, I wonder if... I wonder if specific species of snakes can do parthenogenesis, where they fertilize their own eggs. Ooh. But I don't know. I don't know about that. I know yeah. some species can do that for sure because they've mm -hmm. documented it in zoos and other places where snakes are kept captive. But I don't know if any of the snakes that we have here in Kansas can do that. Yeah, and I don't know either. And I don't think that king snakes can. I don't believe I saw that anywhere in any research that I was doing. Uh -huh. Yeah. Um, let's see. We didn't talk about little ones yet. Um, they might lay uh, 6 to 25 eggs in a clutch, although I have read varying amounts, I think just depending on the resource that you use, but can be just a few to quite a few eggs at one time. Yeah, and I imagine fecundity or the um, reproductive rate, like... Um, the number of eggs they can lay in one one clutch gets larger as they get older. So maybe older mm -hmm. females can lay more eggs versus younger females, or maybe it's just based on, like, food that they have available. 
I don't know. General health and, yeah, and environment. Mm-hmm. and Okay. I am. But, I mean, with fish, fecundity increases mm-hmm. with age. So okay. Maybe it's the same. I don't know. Uh, I don't know the answer to that one either. Uh, but what I think is kind of interesting, you know, a lot of people are worried, and we talk a lot about this at the Nature Center, about babies <laughs> and them being able to take care of themselves. Well, these eggs probably will hatch anywhere from two to three months uh, later after they have been laid, and they'll probably be laid under stumps or rocks or decaying plant material. Um, And these animals, when they are born, immediately they are able to survive on their own. They don't need any help from mom to find them food. Uh, It's just an innate um, way that they can take care of themselves. That's fascinating. Yeah, and they'll be about seven to nine inches in length. And um, it said in most of the research that they might be a little feisty and um, want to uh, maybe bite at you. But they, as we mentioned earlier, they're non-venomous, so we don't and need... their mouths are just so small. Yeah. And if you did get bitten by a non-venomous snake, um, you should still treat it. You mm-hmm. shouldn't just let it go and say it's going to be all right. Yeah. It's going to be an opening in your skin, most likely. Yeah. And so maybe an antibiotic can clean the wound. Wash and, it out. Yeah. Yep. Take care of it so it doesn't get infected. But <laughs> it would not be the snake's fault that if it got infected or caused you to be ill or anything of that nature. Yeah. Um, some fun facts about snakes is, uh, or things that this snake maybe does to protect itself, is that if it feels threatened, it can ra- uh, move its tail very quickly, kind of like a rattler. And when we had the uh, plastic uh, enclosures for our snakes, they weren't real large. They mm-hmm. have much better homes now, by the way. Um, <clears throat> this snake, uh, or the previous one too, if it was a little, you know, grumpy for the day or whatever, it would tap its tail against that plastic Mm -hmm. and you could tell that maybe you ought to be careful picking it up it was just not the best um some of the king snakes although i have never known this snake to do it uh will uh or about 40 percent of the king snakes will excrete a foul smelling feces and muck and musk when they're menaced Mm -hmm. and that's a defense mechanism to help protect them from predators that happens with a lot of snakes like um sometimes i get little lined snakes in my basement Mm -hmm. and they musk a lot uh, garter snakes will musk, like a lot, of, a lot of species of snakes will do that. Yeah, just but very, very strong odor yeah. and not pleasant at it's, all. My nose is very crunched up at the time. It's hard to <laughs> uh, get the smell to go away if you get it on you. Yeah, it uh, lingers. Um, I thought this was also kind of interesting. Particularly in Kansas, the speckled king snake is not an endangered species. There are a lot of them around, and majority of the United States, they're not. But I did find that in the state of Iowa, it is illegal to harm or kill a speckled king snake because they are very limited in their um, areas that they've been found. And I think it was mostly in the southeastern part of the state that they have found evidence of speckled king snakes. Um, There was also, I found an article here in the state of Kansas, uh, Lindsay mentioned earlier as a part of a college class that she went out looking for animal species. Well, there are two organizations, the Kansas Herpetological Society and the Center for North American Herpetology that have regularly done field trips out into uh, pastures and areas, and their purpose is to uh, capture reptiles and amphibians, but then they release them, but what they're looking for is species. So when you look at a range map. Um, that's where we get the data that helps us to know where these animals can be found and how many of these types of animals are still found within the state of Kansas. Mm-hmm. I've never been on one of these um, particular hunts, but there's a good article in our local paper, the Wichita Eagle from 2017, that highlighted um, the, some of the animals that were being found as a part of that particular research study. Cool. Yeah. And then last Lastly, as a part of this uh, podcast, I wanted to share with you some really fun activities from the Awesome Snake Science book, because that's what I enjoy doing, is helping people to learn more about the animals so that they're more comfortable with the animal. So I do the snake senses. Um, I start with how a snake sees. They have pretty small eyes. But um, I have some little models that I give people, and um, it is a a cardboard tube covered with a piece of material that can't be seen through, so that it's going to be darkened, Mm -hmm. and then a rubber band is wrapped around it. In the book, they actually make a pair of goggles Mm -hmm. that you can put on the individual so that you're 
being able to see how a snake sees. And then you put a small slit in the fabric or in the cloth that you've covered the tube with and look through it to see how it um, changes your field of vision or how limited a snake's field of vision is. Oh, man. Okay, and they're... They can't really move their eye themselves in the socket, right? No. Yeah. No. Yeah. And also, their eyes are placed in a couple, in many different places. Uh-huh. So you'll see snakes with eyes on the side of their head, mm-hmm. forward-facing forward. eyes. There's snakes with eyes on the top of their head, which uh, I don't think we find too many in this area. Mm-hmm. They're more jungle-dwelling type snakes, and they uh, it's, it's a way that they have adapted to protect themselves by when they live in the jungle mm-hmm. by having their eye placement in different places. Yeah. Um, um, another thing I usually comment on is that it would be very hard for them to see as well because they're mostly on the ground. And so things that are way up high, they're not going to be able to see. Yeah. And then they only have two vertebrae or ne- bones in their neck, so their neck cannot move very far in any one direction. And I didn't even know they had, quote, a neck. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, it'd be hard to see the neck. Yeah. But it's kind of like the tail. Uh, where does the tail but, begin in yeah. their body? But, but they can move their heads on a swivel, so it, yeah. I mean, it makes sense. Yeah. And this one, right now, is sticking out its tongue, checking out what's going on in here. <laughs> and um, I usually like to use um, a demonstration, and I don't think I borrowed this one from the book, uh, with a jar of vinegar to talk about how the snake brings in particles of the air with its tongue and so that it can tell whether there's food out there that it would like to eat. So if you open up a jar of vinegar. I hate the smell of vinegar. (laughs) So I'm really not doing this for your benefit, am I? Uh, But already I can start, because we have moving air in this room, Mm -hmm. start to smell the vinegar. And so that's kind of how they know what's out there in their world uh-huh. without ever tasting or actually touching. <laughs> yeah, it's got a big whiff of it. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, or another example that I like to give is that uh, you went to a basketball game and somebody went to the uh, concession stand, bought a box of popcorn and came and sat down beside you, but they didn't offer you any of the popcorn. Oh. And so inside your mouth, you start to salivate. And because you can smell and our olfactory system is connected to our taste as well, you start to feel like you're actually got the taste of the popcorn in your mouth. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what the snake's tongue makes me think of. As they pull in the tongue and they touch a special organ in their mouth called the Jacobson's organ, they are relaying that information to their body to help them understand whether there's food out there for them. Yeah. And then, um, until I started reading this book as well, I didn't know what the purpose of the two parts of their tongue were. Their tongue is kind of like a compass. As they stick their tongue out, if one part of their tongue picks up that information and brings it back, then they know which direction to travel in order to find, let's say, a mouse that they're interested in eating. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that's their sense of smell. And then we have their sense of touch. Um, They don't have any hands, so how are they going to feel? things. Um, Their body is very sensitive, the length of their body, although some snakes will have circular areas on their body that where the nerve endings are a little closer Mm -hmm. and are more sensitive to touch. So as they crawl through the grass, they can kind of feel their surroundings and know if they have changed surfaces or kinds of surroundings. Um, Oh, I do like to do a demonstration for this one too. You roll up your sleeve and put your hand as close to your arm as possible so you're not touching your arm and then move your hand up and down and if you have a little bit of hair on your arms it makes you (laughs) yeah I'm just thinking about it it makes me shiver yeah Um, another device you can use uh, for children who don't have hair on their arms is I have a tongue depressor with a piece of yarn um, attached to it and you can touch the back of your hand with it or the palm and kind of see which is more sensitive and that gives you an impression of the sensitivity that a snake might have fascinating And uh, sense of hearing. Um, I usually ask, do snakes have ears? And most 
people know that they don't have those um, external features we call pinna that help them to funnel sound into their bodies so that they can hear. Mm -hmm. And they don't hear in the traditional sense that we do. They don't have an eardrum that vibrates with um, the sounds around them, but they do have a, a bone right here in their jaws or bones in their jaw that help them to feel the vibrations. And um, I always wondered, um, you know, about what pitch they hear. Ooh. And um, this book also mentions that it's about a piano middle D. So here's the sound. <laughs> Okay, that's enough. A middle D. So a middle D on the piano is about the length of vibration that they are able to feel. Okay. So I'm thinking that if they have a predator like a bird that is singing mm. and, or a hawk that's screeching, that the pitch or the tone of their uh, will be too high for the snake to know. And probably by the time the hawk gets there, they may have felt some vibrations of the air particles around, but it's probably too late and they're probably lunch at that point. Yeah, but, I imagine so. Yeah. So let's see. Um, the book also talks a lot about locomotion and how different snakes move in different patterns. Oh, I love talking about this. Oh, well, then you need to talk about it because oh, I no, did no, not no. have notes for it. No. I'll, oh, I'm just, I mean, they move in all kinds of different ways. I think uh -huh. that there are five maybe six distinct ways that snakes actually move. And most people think of them just doing their typical S shape, but there are ones that um, are sidewinders. They use the sides of their bodies to move around. Um, some of them inch along like worms do. It's, yeah, I mean, there are a few different ways that snakes do that. And the awesome snake science book has some models that you can make so that you can demonstrate the different kind of locomotion that snakes have. Yeah. But it's not something that I've usually spent a lot of time on in a presentation because by the time I get through the five senses, I've usually covered 30 to 40 minutes of time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I understand that. We did a uh, flora and fauna episode about how things move around. Uh-huh. And I took a little chunk of my time uh, in my segment for that to talk about the way snakes move around because... Sometimes it's hard to visualize that. Yeah. And one last thing, lots of fun facts in this book as well, but this one has just always amazed me. And there is a national forest called Shawnee National Forest, and it's in southern Indiana. It's a two-point, um, during a particular time of year, this 2.5-mile stretch of road is shut down for migration of animals from their wintering dens to their summer spots. And it's mostly uh, reptiles and amphibians that are caused, and you can still walk the trail, and you can, but you cannot take any uh, motorized vehicles along the trail at that time. That's so cool. Yeah, but so, I, you know, just lots of fun information. And so a great book for any age of a child or adult and yeah. I, I'll have to check to make sure we have copies uh, presently in the gift shop, but I can always ask them to have some in if you've listened to the podcast and you're wanting to find out more about snakes in I general. Mean, I didn't even know we had this book, so I'm going to read it now. It, yeah, well, um, actually, it's my personal copy is because it? Okay. I purchased it from the gift shop, but you are welcome to uh, Thank use you. it. <laughs> um, one, more, one more time for our listeners, it's called Awesome Snake Science, and right. who, who is it by? Um, Cindy Blobaum is, I'm going to, I don't know if that's how you pronounce the name, but it's B-L-O-B-A-U-M. Okay. And um, the gift shop at least can uh, tell you where it is, could be purchased from if we don't presently have copies. Yeah, or, you know, the, the Internet. Yep, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but we'd love to have you come visit yeah. the gift shop at the Great Plains Nature and Center. And maybe see Deb's favorite friend yeah. in person. The speckled king snake who's just been cuddling here on my lap throughout the presentation. Yeah, he's just been hanging out this whole time. Yeah, so... Pretty amazed that I'm comfortable doing this, yeah. knowing my history with snakes. Um, is there anything else you want to add? Oh, I think that's about what I had today. Okay, great. I have a question for you, Deb. Okay. So you said you're, this is your absolute favorite thing. Uh huh. Okay. Now, is well, it... not favorite thing, favorite snake. Okay, that was my question. <laughs> Let's so qualify. This that. is your favorite snake. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Well. Well, I was going to... Oh, were you going to say something? Lindsay? No, you're fine. I was just going to say, is there anything else you want to add, Deb? Okay. Well, I thought I better mention that I hope now that people have heard a little bit more about my favorite, the speckled king snake, that they're a little more comfortable and will show a greater respect for an animal that is a very important part of 
every habitat and our environment. They um, take care of vermin and, and rats and mice and the environment as well as, as you heard, they also eat venomous snakes. So I hope you have a better respect for these animals. Check out our show notes on gpnc.org slash that's-my-favorite. Shoot us an email at myfavorite at gpnc.org. And thanks to our producers, the Great Plains Nature Center. We'll be back in a couple weeks with more favorites because everything is our favorite. Okay, bye.